0: This is the Keto Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 19th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. How should state governments protect people from governmental prying eyes? It doesn't make it easier in a world where police departments have access to the latest spy gadgets with relatively light oversight. During the Keto Institute's Constitution Day festivities, I spoke with Jonathan Howenchild of the American Legislative Exchange Council about how states can make better use of frameworks to protect privacy. Cyrus uh wrote a, a pretty darn good book called Habeas Data. And in that, he sort of details sort of the frustrating way that courts are... Routinely caught flat-footed when it comes to trying to enforce constitutional protections against government intrusion uh, in the field of technology, because technology moves very quickly, and courts are often dealing with cases that are, you know, years old and trying to come up with some sort of rule or um, recognition of how rights ought to be applied in in particular circumstances for states. And and federal lawmakers and policymakers who want to uh, advance a robust conception of uh, liberty and, uh, you know, the little slightly fuzzier concept of privacy, uh,
1: what should they be doing? Well, they really should be looking at providing the court's frameworks. One of the problems that we do have is either general principles, or we have very specific laws that are outdated, and the courts are left trying to reason, especially from the outdated laws, trying to reason and apply those to today's expectations of privacy, to today's technology. One of the principal examples I tend to give is the um, Stored Communications Act, which allows law enforcement to access emails that are older than six months with nothing more than a subpoena. No warrant required. That was passed in 1986. In 1986, people didn't have email addresses like they do today. The Congress didn't think that people would keep emails over six months. They didn't necessarily think that someone like Google or Yahoo or wherever you have your email account would keep it on a server more than six months. So some of the easy things would be to look at those. Those um, laws that are outdated like that, and update them, both for today's expectations, as well as for um, today's technology. You use this word expectations,
0: yes, and that itself has a huge, uh, cr- throws up a huge red flag in my mind, and for a lot of people who uh, want to understand their rights properly, mm-hmm. expectations doesn't seem to give you a lot of a ground to stand on. The idea of a reasonable expectation of
1: privacy, for example. Right. And I, I, I there's been a few law review articles calling for a revision of the standard. You know, it's a, it's a great statement to make as a judge to say reasonable expectation of privacy. But let's, one, consider the fact that it was applied to the government. It's a, a reasonable expectation, not that Google won't track you or that Facebook won't track you. It's a, it's a reasonable expectation that the government won't improperly surveil you, surveil you without a warrant, surveil you without probable cause. But yes, you're absolutely right. It's like what are the expectations of privacy in today's day and age? I mean, we post everything online. So do we have an expectation of privacy? We may not have an expectation of privacy in what we post online per se. But do we have an expectation of privacy that the cell phone that we're using to post things that law enforcement won't be able to either actively track our geolocation or get that information from a service provider, your third party doctor and service provider without a warrant? And of course, Supreme Court actually answered that latter question uh, within the past year or so. Fairly
0: uh, uh, clearly. Yes. Uh, So with respect to the state level, there are police agencies that would like to make use of uh, drones to surveil. Um, There are police agencies that have uh, agreements with uh, the makers of so-called stingray devices to uh, intercept uh, cell communications or tel- telephone communications. There are um, police agencies that would like to make use of the data that that, for example, Google collects on cell phone locations. Uh, there's a recent case of in New York of of police. It it seems uh, acting fairly appropriately with regard to uh, trying to make use of that to try to track down some criminals. So, if states, uh, you know, cognizant of the desire to solve crimes, real substantial crimes, and also protect the innocent from undue intervention. What specifically should states be doing? As, aside from as you say, you mentioned frameworks, but give me a sense of what a framework might look like in some particular case.
1: I think a framework would look like if you're using it for an investiga- if you're using technology for an investigatory purpose, specifically something that would be considered a search. Or even a seizure if you're using uh, what the FBI would call uh, network investigatory tools, um, hacking devices <laughs> or, or other ways to track your uh, online behavior that if it's a goes to a traditional search, if it goes to a traditional seizure uh, more or less, then you should require a warrant, you know, based upon probable cause and specifically stating the person place or thing to be searched. You know, to actually quote the Fourth Amendment, the problem comes when for every application of a search for technology, there's probably a non-search positive benefit of technology. Um, Case in point, a law enforcement can use a drone to monitor a crowd, which would be, you know, potentially a search using, you know, like a what they call a FLIR camera, FLIR, FLIR, F-L-I-R, infrared to you know, do whatever they may wanna do, search behind a wall, um, see how many people are in the house, which again would be a, likely a constitutional violation. They can take that same drone and if there's a missing child in a forest, use that very same drone to search for the child and find the child in less time it would take for a search crew and with more accuracy. So there's this weighing of where do you draw the line for the positive uses and the negative uses, and and I think that framework comes back to, is it a search under the Fourth Amendment? So uh, going forward, uh,
0: there are pieces of legislation that states are uh, considering. What uh, what are, what are some of the interesting things that states have either done recently or uh, might consider down the road that that uh, you find uh, interesting for the purpose of Uh, protecting uh, individual rights. Well, I think
1: the most interesting thing that happened recently was Utah's legislation. I know uh, Libertas likes to claim credit for it, but if you actually compare it so the American Legislative Exchange Council has a substantially similar model policy that, uh, what is that, our Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And what was the substance of that? It basically prohibits law enforcement from accessing geolocation information or data on a cell phone without a warrant. So in many respects, it it statutizes um, the expectations. I believe that was in Riley versus California. But it applies instead of to federal agencies, it applies to state agencies. So if a state agency wants the historic cell information, if they want the live time geolocation information, if they've confiscated a cell phone from a, a, a suspect... They have to go in and get a warrant, you know, which says we think there's evidence of a crime on this because of X, Y, Z. So it, in many respects, protects your privacy and it prohibits the, we'll call it the, the net uh, collection, you know, the uh, attempt to cast a wide net and collect your data. Oddly enough, a similar laws on the books in California. So the fact that California and Utah, which probably agree on very little. Uh, agree on this and i would hope that other states would take the advan the, you know take the initiative from those states and start contemplating and thinking through those we do see states uh, it's probably gone on for about the past 5 6 years starting to limit what law enforcement can do with respect to searches with drones i, I mean there's a uh, there's a bunch of states i can't actually think of one off the top of my head only because they're They're pretty universal and uniform that says, one, law enforcement actually has to comply with federal regulations. So if you are a law enforcement officer and you want to use a drone, you better go to the FAA and get your Part 107 license to operate a drone. So that on the one hand, you're competent to actually use it. And then on the other hand, there's this process that you have to use to actually get a warrant to use it if you're going to use it as part of a search. You're also seeing some limitations uh, from states on the use, and localities uh, on the use of facial recognition software. And this is where I actually tend to caution states and localities because there's three different types of facial recognition. There's one that basically says, this is a face. It doesn't say it's you. It doesn't say it's John Smith. It just says, this is a face. And that may be a particular benefit when you have a local law enforcement that has body camera and they receive a FOIA request for that body cam footage. The software may be able to say, you know, this is a face. And then the second level of facial recognition basically says this is the same face as appeared before. So, again, it still doesn't say this is John Smith. It just says this is face one. This is phase two, this is phase three. Where law enforcement can use it positively to protect privacy is when they receive that FOIA information. They say, okay, faces one, two, and four are all bystanders, witnesses, things like that. Redact in every scene they appear. Redact faces one, two, and four. Phase three is our suspect. Phase three doesn't have an expectation of privacy. Do not redact it. Okay, so essentially, what the,
0: what that kind of uh, activity allows is for police to minimize right. data before they release it to the public, right. uh, for the purposes of protecting those people from a government camera, right? Uh, from having having themselves be uh, blasted across local news <laughs> for no particularly good reason, right? Uh, so are uh, states or uh, to what extent have police agencies made use of this third kind of uh, facial recognition? I can remember in the, the protests uh, following the Freddie Gray and uh, his death in, in Baltimore, there were persistent drones right. flying above Baltimore, capturing all manner of data about people uh, and their comings and goings
1: in the city. I would say both the drone and the facial recognition, it's kind of a paradox. They're both not used as much as people may think, but they're probably used more often than they should.
0: Um, But as technology advances, right, right, uh, you know, and we're trying to think prospectively here, uh, that technology will get cheaper, it will right. get better.
1: The resolution will improve and that sort of thing. Which also brings up an interesting kind of problem with with talking about the courts being very slow. One of the court cases, and for whatever reason, it's it's skipping me right now, said that law enforcement can't use infrared cameras to determine if a house is a grow house because that technology is not available off the shelf. So it's not available off the shelf. But now what are you seeing with drones? that technology is available off the shelf and police can have it, but so can the average hobbyist. So how does that shift the, the paradigm for contemplating whether something's an invasion of privacy, going back to the expectation of privacy? If everyone has a drone with a FLUR, or a FLIR, I think is how they pronounce it. If everyone has a drone with a FLIR, does anyone have an expectation of privacy to what happens in their house? And that's something states are going to have to wrestle with talking about being prospective. But I think what we can do is take those uses, both the ones we know about and the ones that we don't necessarily know about, the, the law enforcement that are hobbyists and think, oh, this would be a great opportunity. You know, I, I see suspicious activity. I know I can't go on the property, but I'm a hobbyist. If I use my drone and I observe what's going on, that gives me the probable cause to go onto the, the property. Right. Yeah. Question is where was the drone? When did he put on the badge? When did he put on the badge? <laughs> right. If they're flying over private property, is that a trespass? You know, is it an aerial trespass? Um Yeah, just so many things to consider and so many, you know, so this is where it comes back to what can states and locals do? Well, I think first is they need to educate themselves about technology and where it's going. The second part is they need to look and say, okay, what principles are applicable? What especially constitutional uh, principles are applicable? Is this a search? Is this a data collection that would not otherwise be available? And for what purpose is it being used?
0: How often do states, when it comes to this kind of legislation, do they look to what other states have done? How deferential are they generally to police agencies
1: who say, oh, no, no, no we need this that sort of thing? You see a little bit of both. So I would say to some degree, states are going to be deferential to certain states. So if they see particular legislation coming out of states like California, that may make me think no technology better. They may defer sure. to them yeah. a little bit, may. But really, legislators are going to say, okay, that's a great principle. It is or is not applicable in our state. Or it needs to be changed in this way in our state. Uh, we may, you know, if you're talking um, like Iowa or South Dakota, they may say we don't have the population that California does. Or if you're South Dakota with the Keystone XL pipeline and the protests, say California doesn't have the same problems that we do. We don't have, you know, California does not have protesters coming on private property, damaging private property, right? Like we do. And so we need, I think uh, they used tethered drones, and they also prohibited both journalists and um, activists from using drones to monitor those sites. So the scenarios may be a little different. So persistent, but uh, a specific piece of private
0: property. And are you you talking about the private use of that technology to monitor property or are you talking about essentially a police surveillance operation on a
1: sensitive piece of property? Well, there's there's both because uh, and I've been to a couple of drone conferences and one of the uh, technologies that companies are trying to sell is a tethered drone to watch um, fuel refinery. And the tethered drone, the tech, some of the technology in it, they can read a license plate, at least the one I saw last year, they can read a license plate, follow a vehicle, and read a license plate on a vehicle from a mile to a mile and a half away. Now, that's a private entity, but if there's something that happens, that data is going to be turned over to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the, the question is, when does it change? Because then you could have, you know, uh, there's been some reports, I believe it's um, the ring doorbells. People are finding that law enforcement, either by agreement or have found a way to access them and create these community watches based off of private property surveillance linked into a law enforcement database. This raises a the question. There are, and
0: I've, I'm not fully up to speed on the details, it's my understanding that some local police agencies have been paying residents of specific neighborhoods, or at least offering to pay residents of specific neighborhoods to install cameras that face outward from the front of a home. Uh, that has to raise all sorts of questions about the degree to which um, private people are being not commandeered, but certainly in a sense deputized uh, for the for the purpose of gathering data for law enforcement.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um- It is a real question. And then you do have the question of when does something become a search? Um, And then if it's a private property, has the landowner provided the consent to the search through that? But yes, there is. I have heard the same thing that law enforcement is either subsidizing the cost of purchasing these or is, is, lack of a better term, providing some sort of bounty for the installation. And then again, the networking into, Um, and it's one of those things, like if you're a homeowner, you may want, if something happens to your house, if it's burgled, you may want to turn that information over to law enforcement. But if it's not burgled, do you really want law enforcement having access to it 24 seven, which doesn't just present a fourth amendment problem. If you think about it, that means there's some sort of backdoor that a bad actor can exploit. Because a bad actor doesn't have to get into your home network then. The bad actor just has to find the law enforcement access. And then it has access then he or she or it has access to your home system and can start hijacking devices in your own home network.
0: Jonathan Howenchild directs the American Legislative Exchange Council's Task Force on Communications and Privacy. We spoke on Constitution Day. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us and suggest show topics on Twitter at Cato Podcast.